Romans chapter 9. Romans 9. And I had a starting at verse 5 or 6, I think, but I want to go back to just verse 1 because that's where Paul gets this discussion going as he's writing the letter. And it's his love, his great love for people that he cares for, his relations, his family, and they're on their way to hell. And he's trying to puzzle this out. They'd been religious, and and they looked like God's people, and they weren't. And he's even saying what some of us have said sometimes about people we love, not knowing what hell would be like to say, I think I would trade my life for all those people. And we've said that and done that. And, and so the passion that it's written with, I want us to see it's not a text written passionless or clinical. And so we'll start with verse 1 after all. That was a last-minute decision uh, to do this. So Romans 9, chapter 1, Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He's he's hurting and he's scratching his head saying, what happened? But then he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but quoting the Old Testament, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, uh, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump 
one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And he goes on, but we'll stop there for our sermon's purposes this morning. Please be seated. And I just want to say, I love to hear those laughing voices. That is the best thing. That, that's music to our ears. And that's a good thing. And we need to approach a serious topic like this with a laughter in our hearts too because it's God's word. So let's pray. Lord, thank you. By your Holy Spirit, please help us. This, uh, uh, these have been fighting words for some people and even in church history, even among your own people in the past. Uh, these are confusing or can be confusing words. Help us today. Thank you for your power. Thank you for the Holy Spirit uh, who will help us and walk us through this text and help us uh, understand what you have for us. Thank you for every word of your Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. So this can either be the most humbling, gratitude-inducing, God-honoring doctrine in all of Scripture, or it can become, if mishandled, the epitome of arrogance, even leading to fatalism. A guy whose last name was Pope, not the Pope in Rome, but a, a, a theologian whose last name was Pope said this. He said, a little predestination is a dangerous thing. Then drink deep, else touch not the sacred spring. What we've done, what our brothers and sisters have done, maybe us in our lifetimes have done, is like that uh, a person Bruno and I were reading about yesterday, a bandit in Greek mythology. He would kidnap people, and then he would cut off their legs to make them fit into this bed. Rather than expand the bed, he would just cut the legs to make it fit his preconceived bed. Uh, we can do this, and Christianity does this with this doctrine of election. I don't understand it. People have been wrangling over it. It can be confusing. Let's just chop that off and put the rest of Christianity in this bed. Uh, no, we can't. If we believe in holy God and if we believe that what God gave us is his word in Scripture, we have to take the prominent doctrines and address them and think through them. Um, there's John Calvin in a book by, by, by uh, a man named Lorraine Bettner, which was really helpful to me. But he's, he quotes Calvin, a warning against undue speculation when it comes to election. Our own confession says, handle this one carefully. You don't lead with that even when you're sharing the gospel. Shouldn't. But here's, what, uh, here's how, how Lorraine Bettner said. He said, we are not, and this, is, this was my reminder in this sermon, we are not under obligation to explain these truths. I'm not under obligation to explain these truths. We are only under obligation to state what God has revealed in his word 
and to vindicate these statements as far as possible from misconception and objections. In the nature of the case, all that we can know concerning such profound truths is what the Spirit has seen fit to reveal concerning them, being confident that whatever God has revealed is undoubtedly true and is to be believed, although we may not be able to sound its depths with the line of our reason. In our ignorance of God's interrelated purposes, we are not fitted to be his counselors. Thy judgments are a great deep, said the psalmist. As well might man attempt to swim the ocean as to fathom the judgments of God. Man knows far too little to justify him in attempting to explain the mysteries of God's rule. That's our ground rules this morning. One last paragraph. The importance of the subject discussed should lead us to proceed only with profoundest reverence and caution. While it is true that mysteries are to be handled with care, and while unwarranted and presumptuous speculations concerning divine things are to be avoided, yet if we would declare the gospel in its purity and fullness, we must be careful not to withhold from believers what is declared in the scriptures concerning predestination. That some of these truths will be perverted and abused by the ungodly is to be expected. No matter how plainly it is taught in Scripture, the unenlightened mind considers it as absurd, for instance, that one God should exist in three persons, or that God should foreknow the entire course of world events, as that his plan should include the destiny of every person. And while we can only know as much about predestination as God has seen fit to reveal, it is important that we shall know that much. Otherwise, it would not have been revealed. Where scripture leads, we may safely follow. Okay? There's your ground rules today. This is a good text. I chose Romans 9. This is part of a whole series on God's sovereignty. We talked about the benefits of God's sovereignty. We talked about God's sovereignty in creation. We talked about God's sovereignty in just ruling the world he created. And now we're talking even specifically about God's sovereignty in choosing who he saves. What does God say about himself in this Romans 9 passage we read? Uh, it's an interesting to me, as Paul's writing this, he talks about uh, the two in the womb. That whole Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. Look at it again in your text to make sure I'm, I read it right. Maybe I read it wrong or something. Look at it. What does scripture say? Well, this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I'll return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, it's important they were twins, same gene pool, same father, same lineage, same everything, one man, twins in the womb. There was, there was Jacob and there 
was Esau, and he says, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That is in, um, back in the book of Genesis, that is Genesis 25, 23. What shall we say then? Paul says, this is a mystery. Here's two little people in the womb, people in the womb, hardly say that anymore, right, in this culture, but they are human beings in the womb. God knows them. They are named by God in the womb. Here's Jacob. Here's Esau. And before they're even born, he said, I created one to be mine that I loved and one that I created mine that I did not love. See, I even hate to say the word hated. (laughs) I hate to say it. That's scripture, though. Jacob I loved, Esau I have hated. This is the Bible. What is God saying? What's going on here? Is God even sovereign in who is saved, in who is his spiritual son? He said, I made, he says, going on in that text, he uses an illustration then. Uh, Who can resist his will? Verse 19. Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump of clay one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? It's the potter. It's his clay. He's the God of creation. He's the sovereign. He can do what he wants with that lump of clay, and he's God. And because he's God, he's right. Vessels for honor, vessels for dishonor. Back in seminary, they brought a tour. This is 25 years ago, I guess. And here comes the the Sun King, the Louis, the 14s, 15 and 16, I think. And and boy, they came came to Jackson, Mississippi. I was right there in Jackson in seminary. We went. Paula and I and some people were visiting, and, and um, uh, boy, the one young man that was visiting with us, he, he, was, he was most concerned that the ears, that when you put the tour, if they'd been cleaned, because he didn't want to put somebody else's earbuds in his ears. He was ahead of his time. Uh, the rest of us just stuck a minute and didn't think about it back then. But we took a tour, and we saw all these things, and I saw this fancy, decorated Boy, it was painted. It was made out of something. It was so fancy in Louis XIV's bedroom. And it was his chamber pot. And it was the fanciest thing. But you know, I would say if we took a vote and said, is that fancy painted vessel, is that a a vessel for honor or dishonor? I would think we could look past all the paint and the gilded edges and we'd say, that's dishonor. And when... Paul talks about how we have this treasure in jars of clay. That's honor. Uh, Whoever made that had the right to make that and do what he wanted with that. That was the maker. That was the clay. That's the maker. That's the clay. God can do what God wants. That's what he's saying. Even when it comes to human beings with names, with heartbeats, with fingerprints, with DNA that they hadn't even discovered then, but there it was in Jacob and Esau. And he said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What does the scripture say? I can do what I want with my creation. 
And we had this whole sermon. We said the creator is here. And every created thing, including you and me, are here. And this creator can do what he wants with his creation. That's throughout scripture. His sovereignty includes to all areas, including election of people to salvation. Some people say, well, no, not really. He gives people an equal shot and everybody. But I don't, I don't say, I, I can't see people have a very equal shot. I make a decision one way based on uh, what my blood level are, how much sleep I've had, uh, how the facts are presented to me, and what way, and all that. Because people are not just all the same in, in every little way we think, but we're all different in, in, in even ways people reason. Um, how can you have an equal shot? I'm going to get to this. Everybody is called. Everybody, there is a call to everyone. Repent. But God, as we're establishing, first of all, in this text, is the potter. We are the clay. Even if we don't acknowledge that, we are the clay. The, The clay that doesn't acknowledge it still had a potter to make it. How must you respond? This is the second point. First point was, what does God actually say about himself? That he is sovereign and that his sovereignty extends to all areas. Two, how must you and I, how must we properly respond to what God says in his word about anything? How do we respond to what God says, how he describes himself in his word about any little thing? Well, before Christ, you come to this word and you either dispute it or disbelieve it. You do what you want. I've got a copy of the Jefferson Bible, old Thomas Jefferson took his Bible and everything that was miraculous, everything that was supernatural, he cut out. And he he has a nice little thin Bible of the moral teachings of Jesus. A lot of people, uh, back when the Bible was at least somewhat revered, did that. Uh, We can't do that. We're not allowed to do that. Take what we want and not the other. Without Christ... If you consider the Bible at all, your tendency is to conform it to your image, twisting its words to make it say what you prefer it to say. One of these governors from one of these states where it's just an abortion, kill those babies free for all, put up billboards in states that are protecting human life in the womb. And he put scripture verses up on the billboards. Uh, what is, I think he used... Uh, uh, Greater love is no man than this, or something about a neighbor. It's the scripture verses were, were terrible. And, and, and from all denominations, they're saying, you're using scripture and twisting that to take human life? Aren't you afraid? But we do those things, and we take our scriptures, and we make scripture justify our beliefs. And the, at, the, at, the, at its very core is is we, we have to take God's word and do this. We submit to God's word. We don't make God's word submit to us. And so here's our scripture. What do we do with Romans 9? As Christians, you seek to understand the words of God in scripture, and then you submit to them as you understand them. 
old Bishop Ryle in this book, Holiness, we just finished, kept saying, if words mean anything, if words mean anything, if words mean anything, and I like it. Now, now, now again, in this day and age, uh, to some people, words don't mean anything. But if words mean anything, if there's such a thing as truth, then, and if, if there's a plainness of Scripture, I do not see how it can be any more plain than what we've just read in Romans 9. And that's not the only place. Passages such as, many are called, few are chosen. Passages that we will see in Ephesians 2 later on. So it's not just one little isolated thing and people building something and constructing something out of Romans 9 that's not throughout Scripture. So what do we do? Well, here's a practical application before we get to the practical application section. When I was teaching this uh, in, in the Delaware church where I was at, we had a, I had a class called Debating Calvinism. I had a book called Debating Calvinism. It was really good. We looked at the scriptures. We saw that. But I would, on purpose, I let the it was adult Sunday school class. We had about 30 or 40 people that came to that because it was, it was an interesting topic. And I would let the people come, and they'd take their chairs. Then I would walk in. I would make sure the whiteboard was empty. And then I would write uh, in the, on the whiteboard in big letters the word mystery. There's a mystery to it. Understand uh, what I read to you even from Lorraine Bettner's book. Uh, you, you can't take this. You could, this could twist you. This could turn you into a fatalist. This could make you do all sorts of things that you're not to be doing according to Scripture. Understand there's a mysteriousness. We take it as far as we understand it, and we say, why did God show us this and tell us this? And we apply it that way. That old elder down there in the Gulf Coast, Pensacola, where Paul and I lived there, we were exit, we were exit one off of Alabama. We always said, it's nice to live in L.A., <laughs> lower Alabama. And that was fun. And every time the, the Crimson Tide has a good game, I think of about five people, and one of them is this, this guy, Tom Roberson. Wasn't so old then. He's old now. But he would be in Sunday school class, and we'd be talking about these things. And, 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 and some of us that would thought a little deeper about it, and at that time, our head would start to explode almost. And Tom would say, it's all in the mind of God. That Alabama voice. It's all in the mind of God, David. Don't fret over it. Just read it and accept it. It's all in the mind of God. We do that. We take it. But we have to say, if it's there in Scripture, what else can we do? Cut off its legs like that myth? Ignore it? Preach only the things we want to preach? Preach a man-centered gospel and not a God-centered? What do we do? Well, we submit to the word of God as far as we see it and know it, and we understand there's a mystery and, and that God's got it under control. I've often said, you can't take God. No one can take God. Drag his carcass in here, his corpse, and cut him open as you would in a medical school and say, this is his arteries, here's what's connected here, here's what... You can't do that with God. Or like in English class when, oh, he'd walk in. I, English was my favorite. English and history were my favorites, but not grammar. <laughs> I liked grammar Sorensen, I liked grammar Hutchinson, but I didn't like grammar. <laughs> okay, Sorry. Um, but with grammar, and I'd walk in, and Miss Holman would have a board about as big as that, 
and there would be all these arrows, sentences, to diagram, and this is connected to this, and this is that, and these are these things, and I could get verbs and adverbs and maybe some participles back then and all that, but you can't take God and put God out and, and, and diagram him as you would a sentence. God's big. God's the creator. We are the creatures. We understand about God what God wants us to understand, and he gives us this to understand it for a reason. But we submit to what we see in his word. What are some common misconceptions surrounding this doctrine? I wrote a couple of them. If you want to borrow this, but I've got, I got to put a tracking device on this one, or I'd say find it on Amazon or, or one of these service things and, and read it yourself. But he goes through a whole, whole lengthy section of objections to the doctrine after he explains the doctrine. Um, I just put a couple of them up for the purposes of this sermon to help us to know there are answers to legitimate questions about it. One is the myth of free will. This hurts man and free will. One of my, my buddies that I talked to from AA, he may be, he's, he's, finding, he's found a church, uh, and he's going there, but when he comes, he's coming back. So he may be listening. If he listens, I'll just have a good laugh with him when I see him on Monday. But he's always talking free will this, but free will, because free will that. Because I think he's heard Presbyterians maybe against it or some, I don't know what he's talking about. But he says free will all the time. And I'm kind of like that guy in that movie, The Princess Bride. I don't think you know what that word means. Uh, Free will. What does free will mean? Rich's friend that that plays in the Rush tribute band. I went back and listened. I won that album when I was a senior in high school. I won the Rush album, Permanent Waves. And it's got that song called Free Will. And I said to your buddy, I said, I want to come down and hear you guys play some night, but it's got to be a Friday and not a Saturday because I... I worship and, and I preach the next day. I can't be out Friday, Saturday night running around, but I'll come here you Friday. I said, but I have one song by Rush. I don't even mind the sound of the song, but I don't like the words, and that's the free will song. And uh, oh, what, what do they say? Here's, here's, what, here's what they said. You can choose a ready guide in some celestial voice. If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. You can choose from phantom fears and kindness that can kill. I will choose a path that's clear. I will choose free will. I'm sorry, that's not a very clear path. Man, you don't know. Are are you free? Are you free to do whatever you want at any time? No. I was in fifth grade. Mr. Rhoda said to the class, I, I, I still don't know why he did this. I've never forgotten it 40 years later. Fifth grade, he said, for the next three minutes, anybody in here can do whatever they want, and there'll be no punishment, no repercussions. For three minutes, the clock is ticking. We sat there, little Christian Reform kids, little Dutch farm kids, and me, and Rosaline, and a couple others, and we just sat there. What do you think we did for three minutes? We could do whatever we wanted. What do you think I've regretted <laughs> all these years? I, I thought, what if I picked up a, that, that brick from that science project and threw it through the window? I didn't believe there'd be no repercussions, at least not from my dad. Mr. Rhoda would have gotten fired. We sat there and we sat there. We had free will. We could do whatever we wanted. And finally, I think Karen Kelberman or Nancy Van Zees, one of the girls, took his books off of his desk and they put it in his, gar- gently laid it in his garbage can. We're all like, ooh, ooh. 
Ooh, gold. Um, no, we were conditioned to not do those things. Maybe that's the point he was making. But we do based on what we're conditioned to do. And if you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and you are morally, the Bible's words, dead, dead, dead. In Ephesians 2, he has to say, you he made alive who were dead. How can a dead man choose anything? You walk by and say, hey, I'm going up to the, up to the buffet. You want me to bring you something? No, he's dead. He can't make a choice. He can't say anything. He can't, he can't get an extra dessert or a drink. Dead. Spiritually, you are dead, and a dead man can't choose. It has to take what the old theologians called alien righteousness, outside righteousness. You can't generate your own righteousness. And even choosing, even choosing, is a work. Is it not? Boy, I was so proud of myself for a while uh, before I understood this. Proud for a while comparing myself to one of my siblings who had grown up in the same house as me, had the same Bible stories read to them, went to the same Christian schools, heard the same pastors, had, had us rocked to sleep with the same uh, little children's songs and Jesus loves me's and hymns in church. And I chose Christ. And this sibling didn't choose Christ. Wow, I'm a little smarter than that sibling because I saw it and he did. And then you realize, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Something had to happen in my life and, and maybe I better be praying for something to happen in that sibling's life. But it's got to take God to bring a dead person to life. All the arguments can't bring a dead person to life. A dead person can't bring themselves to life. And you were spiritually dead until God revived your soul and breathed life into you. It took a loving God to open your eyes to see the truth. And when he brings you from death to life and makes you see and really see, what can you do? If God says and he, he whispers truth in you and he calls you uh, with the inner call and breathes life. All you can do when you see it is say, I am separated from God by my sins and my sinfulness. And Jesus died on the cross for my sins and my sinfulness. I repent of my sins. I put my faith in Jesus. And I, I am God's. And, and some of our language, some of our churches say, accept Christ. That's what I was always told, accept Christ. Well, yeah, you need to accept Christ. Nothing wrong with that. In our, in our churches I grew up in, we were like pretty strong against the Calvinism. And so I didn't even look in our hymnal. But there was a, in the Baptist hymnal, there was, whosoever will to the Lord may come. Whosoever will, whosoever will, shout the proclamation over Vale and Hill, whosoever will. That's a Calvinist statement too. Because whosoever will may come. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. What we're arguing over is, what prompts the whosoever willness of it? <laughs> and my dad, who I love, he says, well, I'm a four-point Calvinist. He didn't like the limited atonement thing. And he says, well, they, they've been fighting over this for years. And I said, well, they've been fighting over for years, but one side's been right all these years, and one side's been wrong, Dad. What do you say about that? And he laughs, and we have a good time with each other on that. Uh, but here's the thing. God is the one who saves God is the one who does what he does with his creation.
So an argument that says it argues free will. Oh, what I need to say is every single person is a free moral agent. That's different. Every person is a free moral agent, and everybody is responsible for their decisions. But if you're in the free will discussion, shift it and, and, and process it that way. Anybody wants to borrow, it's a little primer on free will. It's funny, it's good, it's well done by, by Gerstner, who was Sproul's teacher. Uh, you can borrow this, and, and it's 30 pages, and you'll love it, and it'll help. Um, other thing, uh, argument that it leads to fatalism. You believe this, then you'll just be fatalistic. Not if you're a Christian. You know that you're not going to be fatalistic. You're going to say, you'll, you'll be confident. You'll be able to put your head up and your shoulders back, and you'll live for God, and you'll say, boy, I don't know what God's doing in all this, but I know God's the one doing it, and I know I'm God's child, and I know it's going to be okay because God's in it. And you'll run to Romans 8, 28, where it says all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are, what? Called according to his purpose. Another one says it keeps people from evangelism. And this was the strong one, because the churches I grew up in, they loved people and they took the gospel and sharing the gospel the way it ought to be taken, very, very seriously. They would love and they would weep for. Boy, uh, that, when, when Bretner talked about this doctrine can, be, can pervert people, it can make us really, really lazy. And, and we can use it as an excuse. Well, God's going to do what God's going to do. No, this does not nullify the Great Commission and the Great Commandment or any of that. Um, but the argument that it keeps people from evangelism, it just keeps some people simply from evangelizing. Boy, you look at the greatest missionaries that we studied about in school, if we went to Bible schools, the David Livingstons, the William Careys, the people that sacrificed all. They had a healthy respect for God's sovereignty, and they didn't give up in their calling because they knew God was the one who brought the results. Paula and I were, were young living in, uh, had my Frito-Lay truck parked out in our yard at the, um, what was the name of that? Autumn Run, Autumn Run. And I had my Frito truck, and there was a woman that lived down the street a little bit. We got to know the neighbors across the street some, and then she did some babysitting for some neighbors down the street, but there were these people across, and we had just met them once or twice, and the woman died. We were feeling so guilty, because before she died, we didn't get a chance to Tell them about Jesus. And it was so comforting. This is when I started to understand things and see things biblically and to realize, you know, I wish we had. But when she died, maybe she was a believer. Maybe she wasn't. That woman got either justice or mercy. She didn't get injustice because we didn't share the gospel with her. We have a motive for evangelism. We love people. We love God. We're like Paul in the first part of Romans. His heart was for the people that were on their way to hell. Shame on me when I forget that and just look at them as political adversaries or something like that. Or as people that cut me off in traffic. Side note, practical application. Somebody cuts you off in traffic... <laughs> 
You can either <laughs> flip him the bird. You can say, God damn you. Or you can say, God, I pray that these people are not damned. And boy, she just cut in front of me in traffic and almost caused a wreck. And maybe she just did that because nobody else in this world is praying for her. I'm going to pray for her. And I'm going to stop. And I'm not going to get angry at her. I'm going to look at her as a human being who may need the Lord. And if she's my sister in Christ, how can I get mad at her? Look at things spiritually. This doctrine helps us to see people uh, in a different way, not as numbers uh, to reach or people to get to sign something on a bottom line. Uh, this, this takes it more seriously. So the argument that it keeps people from evangelism, not true. Got enough new people in here. You've heard me, if you've been around a while, the Calvinist farmer versus the hyper-Calvinist farmer. The Calvinist farmer versus the hyper-Calvinist farmer. And apply that to our gospel sharing. The hyper-Calvinist farmer says, God will give what God will give. God will give the crops that God will give. And he sits on his porch and waits for God to give. Calvinist farmer says God will give what God will give. And he chooses his seed and he rotates his crops and he detassels his corn and he, he does what is needed to be done. And they both say God will give what God will give. And they trust God for the results. Um, we don't want to be those hyper-Calvinists. That's fatalism. We want to share the gospel. We want our church to be open. We want to extend that gospel call to everybody, that free call, that free gospel offer. We want to pray for people, and we want to, want to be cognizant of the fact that we're Christians and that our light needs to shine before people in such a way they see their, our good works and glorify our Father. We want to do everything like that, but we understand in the end it's God who gives. Uh, the Calvinist doctrine is actually a great one for evangelism. You can do it more boldly because you trust it to God and not to yourself. Um, last one, and it's going to have to be quick, and it will be quick. God's coordination is because God foresees what you will do. God, uh, you can say all these election words, and you throw them into, well, God just foresaw that you would choose that, so therefore God chose you based on him looking through history and seeing you. And just real quick, all that does is makes fate God and takes God away from being God. With God, foreordination is foreknowledge. Is foreordination is foreknowledge. The words are different when we use them on our human level. I can foreordain something, or I can kind of foreknow something, uh, but, but God, with everything in his map, foreordination, foreknowledge, it's either all God's. God does not have a supercomputer in heaven and say, man, I was so sure she was going to come to the Lord, and I had all these plans based on that. Shh, plug it in, plug it in, plug it in, re-route, re-route. No, God's plan is eternal. We just don't understand. It's a mystery. But we trust sovereign God, and that's what it does for the Christian. People say, well, that ought to make you proud. Uh, the, the, you know the nickname they have for the Reformed Calvinists, right? You ever heard this? The frozen chosen? <laughs> they call us the frozen chosen. Well, don't be frozen chosen. The chosen, that's kind of nice, right? I'll, I'll be the chosen. Uh, what does that do for me? Practical applications, and then we'll go to the table. Uh, I just listed some things out, and we'll go from here. Everyone who is a child of God has recognized their in 
Oh, should have underlined it or put it in bold. Everyone who is a child of God has recognized their inability to save themselves and has come to God in repentance for their anti-God actions, thoughts, and words and have placed their faith in Jesus Christ to save them. It's not incumbent on their ability to understand every nuance of doctrine. You can be a member of this church and say, I don't want to get all that Calvinism stuff. That's not one of the questions. Trusting in God alone for your salvation. Jesus is your Savior. That's, that's, that's the biggie. Um, therefore, our declaration is that Jesus saves, and that's what we lead with. That's what we talk about. The value of the doctrine, the truth of God's election, is best found in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Another passage. For by grace you were saved through faith. Not through your intelligence and being able to to be sold the deal. For by grace you were saved through faith. God gave you the faith out of his wonderful grace. For by grace you were saved through faith. And it says in Ephesians 2.8, and that not of yourselves. He has to make sure we realize, because we're going to keep trying to take that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. He has to say it again, because we're dumb. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. I'm smarter than my brother or my sister, because I chose it, and he didn't or she didn't. No, it's not of works. God saved you. And then it goes on to say, um, okay, so for by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, gift of God, not of worse as anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. He loved you. He chose you. He saved you with things to do that are God things and, and, and his things, beautiful things. We are his workmanship. You've heard whole sermons on this, poema, God's work of art, uh, That's all connected. That's the value of the doctrine. God saved you. God put his love on you. God has good things for you to do. Uh, A lot of times, beautiful, wonderful, ordinary things like changing diapers and and, uh, picking up clothes and washing dishes and driving the car. Uh, What a beautiful thing to love and take care of people. Okay? Has to be some, the value of the doctrine is there. You were bought and paid for. It's not of works you didn't earn it. It's a free gift. It's not earned or deserved. As one of the walking dead, you could not bring yourself to life. But God could. What a miracle of miracles. He saved you. Wrapping it up here. Um, therefore, the main thing, not the main thing, you know, oh, therefore, not the main thing, but true. Go easy on those who aren't Christians yet. Have some grace for those non-believers. See somebody on TV, maybe they're a politician, you don't like them, they're saying things you don't like. Don't wish them dead or wish them evil. Or Just take, a, take time to pray for them. Oppose them if, if they're going against Scripture. Of course oppose. Vote. But don't hate. Go easy on them. They're, they're, they're part of this world system. Maybe God will use your prayers to save them. Pray for God to extend a particular call. Uh, Then again, go easy on those Christians who due to God's sovereignty don't understand or don't emphasize God's sovereignty. If God's sovereign over his body, he's also sovereign that there are whole bodies of of believers who don't emphasize this 
as much as, as, as we think they should or as, as, as they should. That's part of God's sovereign plan too. But they're his children. They're your brothers and sisters. So don't, uh, don't be so hard on, on fellow believers who don't get this part of it yet. Maybe they're even getting something that we're not. Okay? Um, it's not worth breaking fellowship with other Christians who don't get this and who might even deny it when they're talking with you. Listen to their prayers for the lost, and you will see that everyone on their knees is a Calvinist. Every Christian on their knees is a Calvinist. They get down there on their knees, and they pray for God to save somebody. You go, what did you just say? You go, uh, well, yeah, true, okay, got me there. Uh, because we all pray for, for God to be the, the saver, whether we understand all the nuances of Calvinism or not. Um, don't be afraid to go all in on God as sovereign. This will help you. If you think God is slipping in any way, uh, you're in trouble. And if God's sovereignty extends to everything in the earth, obviously it extends to his choice of his people who he saves. If it brings you to arrogance, then you haven't got it yet. You're misapplying this. You're not arrogant about what God's done in your life. Be humbled. I'm not going to read the quote, but I put a good one in the uh, Food for Thought this morning. If it brings you to God in humble gratitude, then you're getting it. Then you understand it. Here's a prayer they taught us to pray as little kids back in Sunday school. And in God's sovereign grace, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> or, let me put it this way. In God's sovereign grace, I'm not going to attempt to sing it to you. But they had us singing it as little kids. And this is how we sum it and go to the table. We would just pray, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation so rich and free. And that's what the doctrine brings us to. And we can be confident in our lives because God saved us and God's got his eye on us and God cares for us. Uh, let's pray. Thank you, God, for this passage. Thank you for your Bible. Thank you for everything good uh, that we see. And thank you, Lord, that we can't just understand every nuance of it and, and, uh, and, and try and fit it into our little baby human logic. Thank you for the reminder this morning that you are big and you are great. And thank you for what you've chosen to tell us about yourself. And thank you for sending Jesus and for making that so clear to us who are Christians, that Jesus is our only hope for salvation. Thank you for saving us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.